0: Hello and welcome to the One Nation Pragmatists with Neil Freshwater and Nick Lampin. The latest episode of the One Nation Pragmatists. I'm Neil Freshwater and um, I'm Nick Lampen. Uh, it is the new year um, and our new year's resolution is uh, try and do more of these than we've done in the past.
1: I think that'd be a good idea.
0: But we might. I think we did. 2019 was busy. It was very busy <laughs> for a number of reasons.
1: We were better on 2018.
0: Yeah, we did. I think two or three episodes. And I'm afraid the last one, the sound quality wasn't great. But um, yeah, we're, we're rank amateurs and we we learn and we.
1: You'll get to blame my internet connection for uh, that, don't you?
0: um yeah probably
1: okay. although I don't quite know why it was so bad last time
0: but yeah I think that wasn't wasn't actually on your uh, internet connection okay but um it
1: was a recording technology
0: yeah something.
1: you mean uh, you mean our, our recording our sound engineer is incompetent should be fired immediately yeah
0: so
1: whatever that is I'll um, get that done
0: if you acquire that church next door you could turn it into a recording studio that'd be quite cool
1: Yes, although the problem is because it's a ecclesiastical building, you can't have alcohol in there, so it's not going to get down very well as a rock and roll recording studio, is it? No, that's very true. My cousin uh,
0: has just well recently launched a podcast about a year ago, and he's converted his garage into a proper full-on recording studio with TV cameras and everything, so you can watch it on YouTube or you can... uh, uh, listen to it online.
1: Well, you're doing building work in your house. I am. I there am. Yeah.
0: But but his wife actually put the foot, door, or his fiance, should I say, he put the foot down and said, no, he's not having a bar in there. But that was all his original plan. Was to kind of, you know, do you so remember?
1: They spent more money on yeah. a recording studio instead. It's about, <laughs> it's about
0: like the old days of um, what was it TGI Friday and stuff like that, and um, and the word they sort of always sort of, they'd be very cool and have a bar and. Uh, yeah
1: yeah. TGI people... Friday had one up. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're doing.
0: Uh, we're just going to make it with a small Olympus recorder today.
1: And we don't, we're doing the sober as well, we don't even have a drink, because it's only 5 o'clock. Well that's because you haven't got a bottle of wine out yet, but I'm, I didn't I have, have got say. a bottle of wine, it's in the kitchen. Alright, fine. Uh, we'll sober it for after anyway. So,
0: um, first topic up today is uh, Mr. Kear Starmer. Yes. Interestingly, um, some months ago, probably a year ago now, I did a quick straw poll on a uh, conservative-leaning Facebook page, and very quickly, about 80% of the respondents, of, about, of which were about 100, uh, it wasn't very scientific, but about 80% of... Conservative supporters said that Keir Starmer was the one they felt was the biggest threat to the Conservative Party. And lo and behold, another poll carried out by YouGov in the last week also said the same. Um, it's also showing that Keir Starmer is, um, amongst Labour members, actually one of the, the leading... Uh, yeah,
1: popular across all ages, all sections of the party. It's He's got a, a there's a, a big sort of cross-party or intra-party consensus, seemingly.
0: Yeah. I mean, I thought he is the no-brainer if he wants to actually, if they want to actually challenge the Conservative Party. But I always had my doubts as to whether or not the... And I still don't know whether or not the Labour leadership election system actually allows that. Because, of course, um, if Corbyn was allowed to get in last time, then Corbyn's successor...
1: I suppose it depends if the Labour Party want, Labour party want to fade into irrelevance, doesn't it, really? <sighs> yeah, because they don't believe
0: it was irrelevant. They believe it was really? the right-wing media. They believe it was the... Uh, lack of a position on brexit, which it partly was they believe it was you know it wasn't jeremy Corbyn basically so they're still in denial
1: um well I'm, I'm, yeah I, I suppose it's it's momentum and and the problem is it's like any political uh grouping that is um, militant as it were that uh if you don't if they haven't won or they haven't got the majority of people with them it's they they put that down to not being uh, enough, so they're not. You know, if it, it, it's the equivalent of being you're not you're not a believer in the communism enough, or uh, I'm saying this badly, answer. I? No, I know, I know um, what you mean. It's basically saying we need more of the same. Yeah, you, you're 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 you ideologi- ideologically you need to be more pure, hmm. and you you need to get even more ideologically right than you were before, and that's and and so their understanding will be that's why they're failing, because they they weren't pure enough to their beliefs
0: yeah and you saw as soon as Tony Blair having had a very very successful period in office for 10 years they kind of um, perceived wisdom as oh we need to move to the left or the Labour Party has to move to the left which is ridiculous because you've got a very successful prime minister for 10 years uh, and then you have Gordon Brown who everyone thought was kind of left-wing but actually he was no more left-wing than, 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 um, uh, than Tony Blair um he came in and said, succeed oh we need to move to the left and then it's just gradually gone you know the way it's gone and, I and think as you the, say that they're the declining the into oblivion
1: was really a reaction against new labor mm. um and especially the uh iraq war
0: yeah true true uh
1: and that's unfortunately despite tony blair you know popping up and saying to everybody i really believed in it. i really believed in it um and the fact that he can't admit that actually, sorry, it was a complete disaster. We should never have done it. Mm. Um, it's that has tarred absolutely everything he did mm. as prime minister, and it will. And 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 I think that was it was a reaction. I think more. or My feeling is that it was a reaction more to uh, the Iraq War and Tony and, and that part of Tony Blair's legacy than the rest of Tony Blair's legacy. But on the other hand, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there, there was, you know, the um, people being intensely relaxed about other people becoming filthy rich yeah. was was not what people have believed.
0: Yeah.
1: And there was an argument that actually we had un- an underlying, the underlying issue of the, the ongoing poverty of northern towns uh, was just not recognised either by Labour, by New Labour, or the Conservative Lib Dem. Um, government or Conservative Mm. government after that and no one addressed it and maybe there were those on the left of the Labour Party who were feeling furious and angry because no one accepted that there was a underlying problem here and Mm. they were just saying well this is the way of the global economy and we're global internationalists and this is what happens Um, and a lot of those problems will have been in the post kind of 80s era, so the
0: post-batch era. So this would have been the first, um, sorry that was the dog, uh, the first era of the Labour government because you could say well had, did, did previous Labour governments um, address the problems in the north and in the areas outside of London but then of course this probably has to be seen to the context of the post-mining era. One would say and then, of course the first opportunity that, that Labour had was in 97 when they took over from uh, the Conservatives, yeah, and I think well. also
1: what we we fail to recognise, <clears throat> and the Conservative Party certainly fails to recognise, is that not only were we were removing uh, the economic structure of of those areas, you know, as with deindustrialisation, mm. but along with them went the cultural um, uh, uh, and, and the community sort of um, organisation. So you know, if you have a colliery band or uh, you're involved in in all of those sort of things that grew out of mm. the one big f- factory and the yeah. groups of friendships and the, the people working together and forming relationships like that and streets you know you're not only removing the their, their economic um, uh, um, the the, 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 yeah, the economic um, factor of their mm. of their life you know you're making them unemployed obviously um, but you remove all the cultural and the social aspect of their life and the, and the social mm. support in their life. So we left, you know, de left people with absolutely nothing. Mm. Uh, and th- what was worse is that the Labour Party... It was bad that the Conservatives didn't recognise it. In fact, it was awful and, it, and, and it, it should be an ongoing... You know, we should all be hanging our heads in shame over it. But even worse was that the Labour Party... Not only didn't recognise it, they didn't do anything about it. You know, and it was their, you know, it's what they sort of talk about as their bedrock and their people. And they just left them, you know, to, to twist in the wind. And and I think that everything that has come, you know, has come after that, the post-Brexit, you know, and so on and so forth, um, it can be pretty much put down to that.
0: But ironically, under the electoral system and so on, the... Benefactors of that kind of neglect has been recently the Conservative Party because they started to eat into these areas electorally. Um, certainly, at this election, obviously it, it puts it into a different context. But there is this association with uh, former mining areas, working-class towns in the north, which are now voting Conservative because then it's now a different enemy. If you like, the enemy is not the Conservatives; it's this unbureaucratic EU, which hasn't um, hasn't benefited them. Or hasn't perceived to have benefited them and then the uh, lack of any or of obviously then delivering that on that promise to leave the EU. And ironically, it seems that the Conservatives, you could argue, were the problem at the first point, for the points of the messages you've made, they didn't look at the yes, okay, they shut the minds, but they forgot about everything else that went around that, the community infrastructure the communities, the social infrastructure, etc. But ironically they've they've been the the beneficiaries to an extent.
1: But the irony of the last three years is is that the it is still the same people who voted for Brexit, saying we're never listened to. You know why do you end up with a conservative majority? Because there was a very clear sort of statement of get Brexit done, and there were people. Uh, 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 my belief is that there were people who voted for Brexit and wanted it done. The reason they voted conservative is because the Conservatives gave them a very clear narrative of we're going to do this. You know. The Labour Party, I still don't know what the, the, the Labour Party's view on Brexit was. And, and certainly I don't know what its manifesto policy was because mm. it just seemed like a, a morass of, of nothingness. Uh, but, you know, for years there were all these people saying we're not listened to by the government. We're not listened to by Westminster, by the liberal elite, by the liberal intelligentsia, or whatever you want to say. And yet, when it comes down to Brexit, they think they've all made their view clear Brexit means Brexit. We're going to get it done, and then three years later, it's still not happening. Mm. You know, like, what else do you assume if you're in that position? But no one bloody listens to us, and they're still not. Mm. And I, I, you know, it's very interesting that that, that, that there was these northern winds for the Conservative Party, but 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 um, if Boris is going to um, consolidate that, then he's now got to. A listen to, a listen to those 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 areas, those deindustrialised areas, but also deliver, and deliver quickly. You know he's got to show he can actually do something, and he understands what's going on, and they can change it. Now that's the that's the next question. You know the the economists wrote the other day about what could be done quickly, and one of them was giving new bus routes. Well, that's great, but really is that, you know that's the best the economists can come up with. Oh well, we will just give them new bus routes, that'll deliver quickly. Mm. You know, mm.
0: So going back to the original point, which is about Keir Starmer, because yeah, and in the context of the Conservative membership and Conservative voters seeing him as the biggest threat, uh, presumably because they quite like him and they perhaps see themselves as being the one that they could vote for, therefore they maybe feel that the rest of the country could could vote for him as well. Um, we well, don't know a huge amount about him. I mean, he was—he's not an unpatriotic nutcase, so that's always something. Yeah, well, that does sort of help. Um, I think for me, I, I I see him as being slightly. Uh, Tony Blair's John Prescott, in the sense that Tony Blair was seen as being the centre, or at least on the right of the of the Labour Party, and he kept uh, John Prescott as the kind of token left winger. So he sort of united those two factions within the party to some extent. I always saw um, Keir Starmer. I don't know a huge amount about his his, his background, and his politics, obviously his background where he came from professionally, but he doesn't, you know, strike you as being a kind of uh, revolutionary uh, Marxist. And to some extent, you think, well, yeah. Um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, as a left winger, then kept as his sort of New Labour, or not New Labour, his, it, in Keir Starmer. You mean Keir Starmer was Jeremy Corbyn's fig leaf? What a terrifying <laughs> picture! <laughs> that sort of idea. That sort of idea. Yeah. But
1: um, I'm seeing a spitting image sketch now. Yeah, yeah. But
0: but again, I say I don't know. What, what are your views on whether or not the Labour Party can actually deliver on that, or will they just go down whoever happens to be the anointed post- Corbyn? Or the, the, you know, Corbyn's natural successor from the kind of momentum view, which I think is uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey, to yeah. be the, who again is relatively unknown and, you know, on the face of it seems relatively uh, safe. But-
1: I think sometimes the the, the the party members can often be shocked into um, realisation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw it with the Conservative Party and David Cameron, you know, it, it wasn't the sort of the obvious choice. Yeah. Um... And sometimes, you know, parties then do the nutty thing. You know, g- going back to um, Ken Clark versus Ian Duncan Smith for leadership of the Conservative Party. Mm. You know, at the time, I remember there was it was considered by the men in grey suits that um, Ken Clark was the obvious choice, mm. and the party wouldn't be stupid enough to vote for someone like Ian Duncan Smith, who was completely unelectable. Well, it turns out. That they were pretty much like Jeremy Corbyn, um, and then sometimes that that shock and that realization is a moment of thinking, oh, okay, well, what do we really want to do? Well, we want to be in power because it's all very well standing here being morally right or winning the argument, but if you're not in office, it doesn't count.
0: And I think that's the problem with or well, any political party leadership is that you it's picked by the uh, by the already converted. Yeah, um, and you know the the. People will argue, well, um, Jeremy Corbyn was the most successful Labour Party leader ever because he had half a million members, which is very impressive. But unfortunately, half a million members is not a general election victory. Make as has been proven, uh, twice to his uh, to his detriment.
1: And it's also, and I think there's been a lot of, you know, the Twitter Twitterati and and that sort of, you know, social media and people being stuck in that feedback loop of listening to what. To what their friends are saying to them, or their their sort of political allies are saying to them, and thinking, oh well, everybody's saying on Twitter that Jeremy's going to win, so of course he is, you know. And then being absolutely, it's almost doubly traumatizing, because you're so convinced that that's what's going to happen when it doesn't happen, you know. It's 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 a real, you have the wind knocked out of you, and then, and you're kicked in the teeth at the same time, because you just you're you're completely shut off from reality. You try to you can't work out, and, and you know. I suppose you you had the same thing in America with Trump, you know all of those people who were convinced that Donald Trump wasn't going to win, because once again they weren't talking to anybody outside their, outside their world. Uh, and also the, um,
0: I think it's a similar case when we had the Scottish independence referendum with the Brexit refer uh, the, EU referendum. Again, if you walked around the streets of Scotland, in some places you would be thinking a seventy eighty percent independence vote because there was such this there was momentum there was. Well, there's a perceived momentum, there was people, as I say, living, living in echo chambers. And I think the problem is they have their vote and then the next, they, 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 they have the vote it doesn't go the way, as you say, the shock is double. Yeah. But then there's this perception somehow opinion has massively suddenly shifted because they feel this amazing anger and pain and hurt that therefore the rest of the population must must feel like. And the, the similar thing happened, I think, on the, you know, you and I are both, we're both remain voters. Yeah. But again, I thought people who were adamant that we should have a second referendum Partly I disagree with it for a number of reasons, but I also felt and never felt at any point was that it was a foregone conclusion. But, of course, the people both in Scotland calling for a second Scottish independence referendum and the people who were calling for a second EU referendum had it in their head that they would win. And that's well, the danger they get into. Yeah. And they're in the same position as the people who, I think, you know are extreme or not extreme but very committed um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn supporters. Yeah, and, and you've seen the reactions now, but basically all these this sort of... Um, the reaction and people kind of shaming Tory voters at the moment you know the, yeah. the, the old stuff rather than actually tackling the argument it's, just it's basically it's, hang your head and shame you didn't vote for Jeremy Corbyn yeah. it's like well okay
1: it's it's <laughs> that he's not going to come back yeah absolutely it's that one last push and we'll get there um and also I mean I yeah there is an issue with shaming people who don't believe who didn't vote the way you did and therefore they must be wrong and and that's another one of my bugbears as you as you're well aware um this this belief that people who vote for the other side are not just misinformed or misguided or, you know, not cynical enough or too whatever. Um, but they're actually, you know, wrong or evil or bad people. Um, and that I that is deeply toxic. But that's a topic for another day. So one final point. Um, who
0: is the biggest threat to Boris Johnson? Someone from the left of Labour or someone from the right of
1: Labour? Oh, I think from the right of Labour and i think there would be a lot of people ironically who would despite the fact that 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 there was a big um brexit you know brexit mean brexit vote i think there were a lot of people who were looking for um a post-austerity um uh and and a different economic model to the one that we currently accept and do you think that the kind of program for government for
0: the next year, despite the big majority, do you think the Boris Johnson and the Conservative government would be mindful of someone like Keir Starmer, who they would see as as a threat in terms of where they go with the policy, or do you think they think, well, we've got the eighty majority, we've got five years, let's just get on with it?
1: Um, I think, I mean, they'll, they'll get on with it, but I think the thing is that that Keir Starmer has got, assuming he wins. He's got a long time to really get his feet under the desk mm. and get running. You know, he can make a lot of cock-ups early on. You know, I mean not big cock-ups, obviously, but you know, he he might not perform terribly well in PMQs or, you know, there are lots of things that he might not get right that he can work on and that he can really start to to build on. Plus, you know, to be honest, he's he's very fortunate because he's now in a well, Brexit is going to happen, we don't have a majority. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, they've won the war. I want to win the peace. You know, um, I don't want a treaty of Versailles. Um, he can make a lot of arguments over uh, the, uh, the, the, the amazing free trade deal that we're going to have with America. And starts to, to hammer home things like, you know, animal food welfare. And say, well, really, do we want to lower our food welfare, welfare standards to the US's? And if we do that, you know, if we have free trade with America and American farmers, basically our farmers are going to be wiped out. Now, if you're Keir Starmer, you can stand there and say, this is what's going to happen to our farmers. You know, you peel a lot. It's, it's I think there are a lot of, ironically, as it turns out, I think Brexit per se is going to be the easy part. It's it's everything afterwards that's going to get incredibly difficult. Um, and these all of these treaties and trade negotiations, uh, I think uh, there will be. That's where the, the the fault lines will now start to fracture. Has he actually declared he's running? No, he hasn't. I don't think many have. So basically, it? we've yeah. already we've already given him leadership without him. Well, that's it. But
0: it, it is interesting that two. Uh... Sort of uh, Tories are sitting here chatting about um, Keir Starmer, but uh, I think fundamentally he sort of comes across as being prime ministerial, and I think yeah, he, he yeah, was, was he was seen as being the most competent during all the the, the Brexit negotiations, yeah. and you felt there was someone that you could, you well, could it felt do business like there with. There's two up kind up the of room. lefty <laughs> Tories sitting around here, you know, you you kind of feel that that's someone you could do business with, yeah, far yeah, more, yeah, more easily than um, than say some of the slightly more lunatic uh, fringes. Well,
1: half the problem with say Jeremy Corbyn is that there's no way on earth that he could ever do any sort of deal across the aisle he just he just is constitutionally incapable mm. of uh of negotiating with anybody he sees as uh, with a different politics to him mm. you know so
0: anyway it. so well uh Keep an eye on what happens, and no doubt we'll have some time to catch up on the uh, Labour contenders when we know who they are.
1: Well, I think yeah, absolutely. As long as we, as long as we have another podcast quickly, if you pull there. That's it. No, I haven't. yet. Yeah. Okay. I, I was trying to. <laughs> you just cut me off. It's, this is worse than Radio Four. No, it's not. <laughs> um. Right, next up, we're talking about Dominic Cummings' blog post and his plans for the civil service. Uh, he wrote an email this morning, well, wrote a blog post rather this morning, a quite long blog post actually, which I haven't read, I've only read the, uh, I, I will admit that now, um, basically saying that he wanted non-public school bluffers. Uh, so, anyway, I can't imagine why, why he's got a problem with those. Um, and also non-Humanities Oxbridge-educated uh, people in the civil service, which is a bit of a surprise since he's an Oxbridge-Humanities-educated person. But there we are. Um, obviously he doesn't see the irony of that, and, and more to the point didn't mention it either, which I think is slightly, slightly ironic. Um, but Neil, you worked in the civil service. I did, I did. Yeah. I, I survived two years
0: in the Ministry of Defence, which was an absolutely fascinating time, but... Um, yeah there was a lot about the the, rec- I mean, the the recruitment process getting into it particularly from the outside was was very very hard um, and in fact when I when I applied I, I, I struggled so much with the application and um, you know okay so I'm not a uh, I didn't go to Oxford but you want, one assumes you shouldn't have to go to Oxford or Cambridge to be able to apply but the thing was just so convoluted that I didn't actually complete it and I just sent it in and anyway I thought well I've done half of it so I'm just going to send it in and miraculously um, they spoke to me but what i discovered having then spent some time actually on the inside is that um it's so geared towards um it's so geared towards um those who already work there if that makes sense and i don't think that's done intentionally it's not a, a case of trying to keep people out it's just i think the culture is so specific to that department or that bit of the civil service Um the Ministry of Defence apparently is particularly bad for things like bureaucracy, generally speaking, uh, and it's very, very strict on the way that it follows rules and so on. But I just remember being baffled by the, by the application process. and um, It was just very, very odd. Um, and again, as I say, on the inside, um, it, 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 was, it was apparent as well. So I think the, the, the underlying point, the fundamental point about that is I think what Dominic Cummings is, is, is doing is, is actually hit a very good chord. Uh, I would probably think he was being a bit odd. Uh, well, I'm not, I'm not. I wasn't a huge, not a huge fan of Dominic Cummings, but actually, I have a lot of sympathy with what he's at least trying to do. Um, it is a massive, and it'll be impossible, I think, to um, to achieve any massive change in the civil service. Um, obviously, what he's doing is recruiting a very small pool of people into his inner circle or his his team within Downing Street, which will probably be a handful of staff. But if you're trying to deal with um, many, many layers of organisations, um, culminating in hundreds of thousands of, of, of staff it's a very very difficult thing to shift uh, i mean the mod alone you think about it and i this is one of the mistakes that i made when i went into the mod i i sort of thought it was like one organization so you walk into the mod and you need your computer fixed you pick up the phone to the it department it's just it's it's not it's it's department within department within an organization within department um and that's just partly because is my lack of experience having worked in a large organization uh, and I'll sort of say, oh yes, isn't 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 the public sector so bad sometimes? But then other people will say, well, I worked in a bank and it was not far yeah. as bad as that. So I think it's partly to do with the size of the organisation and and it is the requirement to um, have all these rules and policies in place. But I think going back to, to do- Dominic Cummings' point is that um, it's th- these big institutions um, don't seem to have this way of allowing what he is trying to achieve. And that is basically just, you know, have you got people with the right experience and, you know, the right approach to, to, to doing things, which will, which, which, which will change as opposed to just simply doing a, a, a box ticking exercise. And what I should say, like, like many job applications, but particularly in the civil service, the application process is very much about just being able to do the, the process. Yeah. And the slightly weird thing is they give, they, when you apply for the job, they give you so much advice on how to complete the application form, it's very difficult to see if you had 50 people applying following the rules why those 50 yeah, applications yeah. would be any different because you, they don't allow for things like, uh, ironically, you know, one thing he, Dominic Cummings might agree with is they don't allow, I think, for example, uh, gender, which is right, university, for example, uh, and so on. So um, it's so homogenised, but not just on those things, which should be, perhaps... But also the things like the, um, what they call these uh, competence-based questions, which is oh, about yes. kind of very generic questions. So you can turn any experience. It doesn't really, it gives you a way you can find any, any experience um, and allow people to turn it in, which on the one hand is good because you'd think, well, that gives people who maybe don't have the experience to get their foot in the door. But on the other hand, it just doesn't really allow you to say, well, we need people with good technical expertise. Yeah. And I think that's the final point I'd make is that very few people, um, mod perhaps an exception particularly in the procurement thing where there is a big uh requirement for engineers and so on ironically however that is one of the 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 big areas that um dominic cummings has said his his sights on which is defence equipment and support um but um what is not recognized is is particular skills and it's all about the generalist and and it encourages people to move on every 18 months so on and so forth so I, anyway, that's my sort of brief insight, but I, uh, simply to say that I'm not a fan of Dominic Cummings, but I have a huge amount of sympathy for what he's, albeit with a bit of tongue-in-cheek, trying to
1: achieve. I mean, my, my experience of, of our bureaucracy, our government bureaucracy, um, is been that it's very much process-driven and not... Uh, and not. To, do I do apologise for that that's
0: <laughs> grumbling, under, that's actually the dog snoring under the table, but we'll leave it there, because it adds a little bit of... Uh... It's really bored. Uh, <coughs> um,
1: LAUGHTER it's had a busy day, and it's, yeah. a, it's, it's, an, elderly, it's an elderly had a long walk. Dog. he had a long walk. But it's it's process-driven and not outcome-driven, um, and not delivery-driven, uh, and I do, and there's a lot of, and, and okay, admittedly, I'm talking uh, specifically about Scotland and one or two particular agencies up here, um, but they spend their lives trying not to make, seemingly from the outside, they spend their lives trying not to make decisions that they might be held accountable for. Um, in the worry that they're going to be fired but of course no one ever is fired so they could make the most wonderful decisions and never be held to account for them whether they win or whether they fail so you know why why not get on with it and just do it and maybe it's a mindset either of people going into it or people just get ground down you know the good people get ground down or they leave and you have the the, the time service that just manage to stay there and some cream rises to the top But I do think, you know, I mean, I've filled in those sort of application forms for the civil service as well. Uh, One of which was a... uh, I won't get too deep into it because it's quite dull, but uh, it was about what... The dog's already snoring, remember? Yes, I know. Um, The other one will start in a minute. (laughs) What um, policy experience... what, What experience I had in creating policy. Well, very few of us in the world have experience of creating policy unless you work in government. However... I had been directly involved in implementing that policy on the ground. So I knew exactly what their policy, what the real implications of their policy were. Didn't
0: get an interview there.
1: <laughs> well, if Dominic Cummings is listening.
0: He, yeah. he knows we are. I'm sure he'll want to listen to uh,
1: I'm sure he'll want to listen to this. to what, to what we
0: have to say. <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're right. It's difficult to, to get. It's, it was difficult to get rid, rid of people uh, in any employment, which you know to some extent is right because you know you go to America and it's it's uh, it's it's kind of the other extreme. But I, well, I think ha- we
1: should introduce the gig economy into the civil service. The
0: gig economy. Yeah. Right? yeah, they all have little Uber apps. You know. Yeah,
1: they've all got to do Uber in the evening. If it, and, it, so and, if yeah. you need a task, um,
0: yeah, they just sort of go into an app and people can sort of bid for it or whatever, and yeah. you know, it's a three-hour yeah. shift on you go. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe not. But, um, what was I going to say? The, um,
1: I don't, I mean, I, I I think the problem Dominic Cummings is going to have is it's all very well saying I want to change this bureaucracy, but the problem with bureaucracies is they outlast the people unless you do massive civil service reforms and, and the government only has so much time and so much energy. I mean, I reckon the government can really get through one big piece of legislation every year. Um, and implement it, and it takes all of the government's energy to get that one piece of legislation through, you know, one big showpiece reform. Yeah. Um, and so that gives them five years, and they're exhausted. Well, I don't know how quickly you're going to see any results from the bureaucracy. And you've got to, like any organisation, changing the nature of any organisation. Mm-hmm. A, you need a crisis to be able to shake it up. Well, they've sort of got. A, an event changing experience which is Brexit so that will shake it up and so there will be time to change the nature of the civil service then but you've got to keep you know you've got to keep pushing you've got to do it very quickly and you've got to keep pushing otherwise people just just remould back into mm. the form they were before or something very much like it and everything life goes on as it as it was before and the government loses the election new lot come in you know and stop. I'm not sure what fundamentally you can actually do to change it. I mean, I think you know you can look at
0: the recruitment process. and to be fair, I believe the civil service as a as a, um as a sort of organization, if you like. and that was the other weird thing I found the Ministry of Defense is that there's the kind of civil service, which is kind of I suppose one massive organization. And then within that you've got your individual government departments. And when you're doing things like recruiting, you apply some of the civil service wide policies. And then in the bigger departments, you then apply their other, the other policies. Mm-hmm. So when you actually apply it, they say, "Yeah, these are the some civil service competencies, here. are Some military defence competencies, Here are some MOD procurement competencies, etc." Um, and to be fair, the, the MOD bit that I was actually the
1: MOD doesn't have procurement competencies.
0: <laughs> boom boom. <tsh. laughs> well, that again is, is is part of the reason for the um, um part of the reason for Dominic Cummings has changed, and not wishing to give away too many state secrets here. Uh, and I did sign, because no one ever actually signs the official secret site, it's just an act, which means, you know, if you um, if you say things you should you'll get in trouble. But I did once have to sign individual tea bags on t- two occasions, and I'm given a sheet which says, you know, 28 bags used, and I will sign that. And I just thought, and, I, and my words were, are you fucking joking? <laughs> in the politest way to my colleague, but those are the words that came out of my mouth. And uh, you realise that they procure tea bags like they procure um, aircraft carriers, which just is bizarre. Anyway... Um, that's going to be slightly off topic. The, the, issue I, the, the, the issue I couldn't remember, or the, the, the point I couldn't remember earlier, was uh, there was an, uh, uh, I don't know whether it actually was a true story or just it was a... Apocryphal. Uh, a what? Apocryphal. That'll do. Uh, but apparently someone, uh, one civil service, punched another civil servant in the face and didn't get sacked, so... uh I, really- uh, I don't know whether it was just a, um, yeah, just an analogy or a... An analogy, is that the right word?
1: uh but an apocryphal story an apocryphal story but, yeah yeah the, it's rather like the bbc when news 24 started on the bbc and it was so shoddy yeah and they always had the wrong cues because it was all automated right and it was all computerized and so they had cameras going off in weird directions and lights going off the queue not working bloody blah, blah blah and apparently and i was told this by, by a very famous bbc newsreader. someone said live on air and unfortunately it wasn't recorded oh fuck this threw his papers in the air and walked off set and that was it. Never, yeah, and it never, never recorded, sadly. I realise we've just sworn twice. I think we now have to click yeah. the parental advisory
0: thing when we go into our... Uh, when we upload this. Really?
1: Because I know children who swear far worse than that.
0: Yeah. Oh, well. I'm sure they'll never find us, but... Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so
1: anyway, I think... Good- there are going to be children listening to podcasts about politics. Well, you yeah. never know. <laughs> um,
0: so, yeah, so we've got... We, I think sort of good luck to Dominic Cummings. Um, I think he's got the... Uh, it sort of sets a tone, actually. Um, what fascinates me slightly about Dominic Cummings more broadly is he, how much free reign he's been given. Um, and you wonder, had...
1: Do you think it's free-range he's been given? Or do you think it's free-range he's... She, he... Well, he's... he's. Um, I think other special advisors have been much more um, uh, quiet about what they're doing and their relationship with their minister and all the rest of it. And he has got much more latitude... He may not have more freedom, but he has more latitude to speak about it.
0: Yeah, and is that part a tool from government? Because it can always... Um... Use him as a scapegoat if ever it goes yeah, wrong. So come in. And it's quite yeah. bizarre actually, there's this sort of approach. And I'm sure um communication scholars will in future an, analyse this, but it is he's being used as the kind of tool behind um the the actual medium to um to announce he government the policy. And the medium maybe. and you kind of feel now Boris Johnson. And it's a it's a slightly Trumpian way of doing it, but he can turn around and say
1: oh, well, you know, Dominic Cummings is talking rubbish, you know, that's not our policy well, we all at all. In the same Bor- way that- we all know Boris likes to be loved, and yeah. therefore, you know, why not get Dominic out there who doesn't give a damn, really, yeah. seemingly, and, and he can do all of it while Boris sits there thinking, oh, they love me. Yeah, yeah. and uh, as David Cameron used to say to Boris, oh, that's just Boris being Boris,
0: and Boris can say, oh, that's just Dominic being Dominic, isn't yeah. it? Uh, but it's an interesting approach. I mean, if, if you cast back to... I mean, is it it, it a comparison, Dominic Cummings and um, Alistair Campbell? Mm -hmm. Now, Alistair Campbell was high profile, but only high profile in the sense that he was known about. So he was known about as being um, Tony Blair's great communications director who was able to use the media.
1: Yeah, he was using the media to get the message across. He wasn't really... The uh, messenger. uh, Yeah, and this this goes back to sort of new labour and... it always slightly felt that although they had a massive majority they never really knew what to do with it and so they were they were keener on getting the message out that they were in government than actually what they were going to do whereas it seems to me that Dominic Cummings is not playing the media game he's just sort of saying no this is what we're going to do no reporting it missing you know misreporting it I don't really care
0: but of course the media game was kind of gone because that was you know in the days when front pages and massive. column inches matter, and to some extent yeah. they still do. But obviously, somewhat, uh, the internet wasn't really around back in 1997. It kind of was, but not really. It was still a, a fairly—I uh, don't think I had a regular subscription to an internet provider for another couple of years. Just stop picking yeah. at that candle. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> um, but we do have electricity in the Highlands here. Don't worry. But take, there we do. You
1: know,
0: Shh. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I, I th- you know, I think you know, it, it, it's Dominic Cummings the equivalent of the modern day alistair Campbell.
1: Potentially. Um, I think different roles. Mm. I think they're playing completely different roles in different yeah. games. Speaking I don't of I do think which... Alistair Campbell was uh, interested really in, I, I still think he was, interest, he was interested just in the new Labour message mm. and um, publicity, but he was not seemingly interested in policy or, I don't think he was politically curious about about the function of government and the and the methods of delivery and that sort of thing and that's maybe and what's interesting actually if if you read and I've not read it I have to say I haven't actually read the blog I probably
0: should have done but reading the coverage of the blog from by Dominic Cummings is it talks about this idea moving away from uh, kind of people that have worked in sort of communication and lobbying yeah um, in becoming advisors and that's that's you screwed that's me absolutely screwed Um, and that's what he's getting at. He says you want people that are, you know, that are not that are more than just political operators. You mean he also...
1: wants people who've actually done stuff.
0: Right, yeah. 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 So um well we can interview you when you've uh, got that, that job at number ten. Um But no, uh, yeah. But um it's uh, it's certainly uh, gonna be uh, an interesting time to see how he we, we'll how he cer- does it.
1: We'll certainly get some more. If I get a job in number ten, we'll certainly get some more um subscribers. We might do. But that will, will you be uh, We'll be up to three. No, four four they're already three. Oh well that's yeah. cool the dog well we've got the two dogs here so they're, they're listening they don't subscribe i think of your wife
0: all right yeah she subscribes she does yeah. I think uh,
1: <laughs> is she, is she unsubscribed <laughs> <laughs> not yeah. at all not at all they, they, yeah. they were coming
0: in flooding uh flooding in thick and fast they're trickling in <laughs> Trick, oh yeah you never know you never know but uh, it's about keeping up momentum yeah uh, exactly m- no pun intended So Nick, I'm no great expert on foreign affairs, but um, we saw today that an Iranian general had been uh, killed in uh, Baghdad. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell us a bit more about that.
1: Oh great, so I'm going to get the one to get his name wrong, am I? (laughs) It is Qasim Soleimani. Um, And he is by all accounts a nasty piece of work uh, and has been going around... uh, um exporting iranian influence throughout the middle east and destabilizing the middle east however um and he was uh uh killed in an american airstrike as you say in in uh, baghdad this morning Uh, now the question that i you know i'm sure i don't have a great doubt that he he was not a nice person probably doesn't deserve to be on this earth however you are introducing quite a lot of questionable actions when you start uh, killing uh, senior members of foreign countries, of a country's armed forces, who you're not officially at war with. Uh, and not to mention then destabilising a region afterwards. Uh, and I, my issue, the issue I have is that it's it seems, it always seems, and, and no one knows what the advice President Trump was given, Um, but it always seems to me that whenever this happens and someone cuts the head off a snake, it doesn't actually tend to go the way that anybody thinks it's going to go. Uh, And maybe I'm living in a better-devil-you-know world and and containment, uh, and that sort of post-Cold that War system of containment rather than confrontation. but it seems to me that we're now living in a very, very—we've now reset, or America has now reset the rules. Whereas it is acceptable to kill a senior member of uh, armed forces of, of a country's armed forces that you're not at war with, and I think that's incredibly dangerous precedent set. Yeah, there was a, uh, some coverage this morning. I think
0: in the Times was saying was comparing it to be more significant than the. Uh, killing of Osama bin Laden. But I think the two are, are incomparable because by the time Osama bin Laden was killed, no one even knew he was still alive. He was kind of yesterday's man. It was, you know, he was found in the desert in a cave uh, and it was kind of like, oh, well, whatever. You know, the, 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 this, he, he was already removed from being an active member, notwithstanding the, the obviously, as you say, but he was, was still the head, of, the, the head of, of, of the organisation. But
1: but he was of a head of a terrorist, a known terrorist organisation. I mean, it, it's it's a different... It's a completely different yeah. kettle of fish, you know. And if, quite frankly, if we're going to go after an Iraqi who's destabilizing, uh, sorry, an Iranian who's destabilizing the Middle East, then why are we not going after? Why is America not going after senior Russians? Because they're doing the same sort of thing. They're spreading influence around the world. They're invading uh, Ukraine, Crimea. There's absolutely no difference in what they're doing. I and mean, so, why does America say it's fine? It's fine with Iran, but not with Russia. And even the way it was carried out, I mean, it was,
0: you know, it was described as an assassination. And it probably was. It was done at Baghdad Airport, which I presume is a public airport, like yeah. Heathrow is. Um, there were two vehicles, I think, leaving the aircraft, yeah. uh, one with him and his immediate um, right-hand people, and then another one containing the bodyguards. Uh, and they were, you know, was a, a drone strike, I presume, I think it was, to do it. So it was quite a sort of, you know, a very different context from, as you say, you know, a... Um, a terrorist leader hiding out in the desert for for donkey's years yeah. uh, to then be found after a very, very long um, manhunt you know, Right, I'm not saying what was right, what was wrong regarding Osama bin Laden, but certainly a very different, uh, uh, a very different kettle of fish. Uh, Boris Johnson apparently didn't know about it. So I read. Uh, and I think the response from the Foreign Secretary here, Dominic Raab, is that it, you know, they're sort of calling for, for caution on it. So it doesn't sound like there's going to be any um uh, immediate sort of support for the Americans on this. No, uh, which, I mean, it's, which will be interested in in, in the wider context. I, I think. mean, the
1: British can't con- condemn it, as it were, or won't condemn it, but I'm 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 pretty sure they're not going to condone it either. Yeah, you know, and we get tired with being the, being the intellectual. You know, Iran always thinks that Britain is this uh, puppet master for America, mm. and and Britain, uh, you know, pulls the strings for America and gets its way. Which I wish we were that good. Um, if only they knew. And this was, this was probably the first.
0: I'm trying to think of another kind of. It's, it's, it's not really military intervention. This is such, but it's the first kind of attack that we've, that's been sort of done under Trump. And um, that's kind of, you know, it's the sort of the moment that makes you wake up and go, oh yeah, that's, that's not, I there were one or two oh. and I kind of thought these aren't, these aren't really particularly big things. And, you know, so much that neither of us could actually remember them. So no, I, think I mean,
1: there's been things, the first... for sending in special forces and stuff, but not really, not really. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, the issue you have now is that, um, you have a uh we're we're now in a situation where Iraq could easily say we want America to withdraw all of its forces um, and which would probably play into to trump's hands about you know getting getting you know disentangled from from world affairs but you know the the Middle East is not exactly the most stable of areas in the world uh and it's a very I think it's very finely and, and delicately balanced uh and I I don't see I don't think any of us know what what the eventual outcome is going to be anyway you know, I'm not going to say, well I am going to circle I sound like Teddy Blair now I'm not going to feel the hand of history no uh I'm not going to say make a comparison with Archduke Franz Ferdinand But, you know, who could see that an assassination attempt on him was going to lead all the way to where it did? Mm. And I think it's very difficult, you know, it's very difficult for anybody to ever be able to Mm. predict the future. In fact, it's an absolute guarantee that we get it wrong. But um, I think you have to be very careful about about pulling threads in finely balanced situations especially in non-democratic countries Hmm. where you don't really know the ins and the outs of all the power plays and what's going on. And what was the actual
0: justification for, what was America's official justification for the attack or for the assassination? Well,
1: they'll say he's basically a terrorist and he's going up. uh, I mean, he has spent a lot of time going around uh, and and building up Iranian influence uh, throughout the Middle East and what we would have called sedition, I suppose. Uh, and undermining states and 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 backing those states and those leaders who play to iran uh, uh, to iran 's um strengths as it were um and undermining those countries who are not aligned with uh iran and and supporting militias uh, and so on and so he is a nasty piece of work and and he has been going around, but there are nasty pieces of work all over the place all over the place yeah and and it is It's it is just an alarming precedent to set Mm. because it is a proper assassination in the sense that
0: it's as I say it's not like it's we need to find him and sort of hunt him down it's it's you know again I don't like to draw the comparison with the with the Sam because I don't think it is a comparison but that was what was that was what was poised in the um in the Times article today but um, it's just the way it is a kind of it's a sort of calculated you know sniper shot to the head type of assassination as opposed to a military you know, campaign for yeah. months or and years to try and, you know, hide a terrorist cell. This is a very different approach. It is an assassination. And, it's and a single exactly right. clinical assassination. It could
1: have been it could easily have been a sniper sitting on a roof instead. Mm. Yeah. There is no there's no difference. You know,
0: it's, it's It sounds military because it's Baghdad, it's yeah. the Middle East, it's a it's a drone. But as you say, the, it could have just been a
1: guy. But it's it's the equivalent of of you know the of Carlos the Jackal lying on a roof trying to shoot um uh oh uh, no this is not very good is it um is your French fil- President it's,
0: yeah, it's your, uh, your film history not uh, no it's not even film history it's,
1: it's actually uh, anyway uh, you oh can, not film The this. Yeah, well it was it was made into The Day of the Jackal yeah, yeah. written up by Freddie Forsyth but it was, it was based on true story yeah um, of de Gaulle of Carlos the Jackal um, trying to assassinate de Gaulle and so, what are people saying? That will there be
0: a, an Iranian re- re- retaliation? There probably will be of some description, but it's uh, it's hard to know what it would.
1: Well, I can't believe there do. won't be. Um, you know, the Great Satan. Mm. Uh, and but I think it also means that any influence that America has with Iran on trying to keep nuclear weapons away from them has just evaporated, mm. um, and there and America will have absolutely no influence. In Iran or with Iran for well till Trump is certainly out of office and the Brits certainly will be I mean not that I would
0: again draw a comparison between the two but of course you know there has been a right up quite a difficult relationship between Britain and Iran over the prisoners that have been held I'm not saying the two are related but of course you cannot have one without the other I'm not saying there would be in retaliation but if you were uh, you know for example had Britain sanctioned this then any negotiations and obviously Boris Johnson was very close to this because he was blamed for the um
1: well uh, it was his fault he did make a complete and utter cock-up
0: well exactly so therefore um you don't want to like, give yourself any excuse to something you know, i presume there are still you know work going on there obviously there was this uh the not well, journalists are still being held there the other couple that were held were ultimately released interestingly dominic a robb since Australian. the
1: election seems to have manned up a bit about, yeah
0: i'd like to say it's, it's amazing how your opinion of people changes and i was yeah. thinking to dominic rab who again i suddenly
1: seems to be being stood up and being counted yeah. which
0: was very unlike him before the election yeah but I think that's a, that's a good example of how Brexit just seems to, to um, tarnish everything. Because I just saw him as being this sort of slightly odious Brexiteer, um, but actually I thought, well, he's being I mean, a bit more. Isn't
1: even an odious Brexiteer? It's just sort of slightly too interested in Dominic Robb's career at the well, cost of too. everybody else. Yeah. And now suddenly he seems to he seems to be. Person, not the person he appeared to be. Yeah,
0: but I suppose I that's when you're given the high obviously Boris, Well, I don't know. Boris Johnson didn't do a very good job in the Foreign Office, and he ended up in Downing Street. But yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, um, I think Dominic Cumming maybe has a bit more. Uh, Dominic Rob
1: even. <laughs> Dominic Rob, sorry, yeah, has a bit Freud more.
0: Probably Yeah, probably <laughs> has a bit maybe, more.
1: Maybe it. Dominic Cummings is, is actually running the Foreign Office. Well, and probably, Dominic yeah, Raab so. is just his little
0: puppet. Yeah, it is. But anyway, we shall uh, we shall follow the story with interest and see what happens in the near future.